This is the Houston Coaches Podcast, where we honor the legacy of Houston area football and promote growth within the coaching profession through conversations with the greatest Houston area coaches of the past, present, and future. Brought to you by the Greater Houston Football Coaches Association. Welcome back to the Houston Coaches Podcast. I'm your host, Andres Gomez, and I'm joined today by another uh, Houston area legend, a state champion coach, and just a true uh, role model for so many people in, in, in greater Houston, the incompar- incomparable coach, Neil Quillen. Thanks for joining us today, coach. It's an honor to have you. Thank you. It's, a, it's, it, it's an honor to, to continue to be part of this. Uh, so as, as I shared with you, you know, before when we spoke last week, Coach, this project was started with the hopes of using the wisdom and experiences of coaches like yourself to help guide those of us that are not charged with leading programs of our own and who are navigating through the rapidly changing landscape of high school football, as, as well as any future campus and district leaders who uh, may be listening that are in the early stages of their journey. Uh, so just to start off, Coach, will you please just give us a brief rundown of your playing and coaching career? Um, okay, I grew up in uh, East Texas and uh, began playing uh, football when I was in the uh, fifth grade. And uh, I grew up in, in Jacksonville, Texas and played for a great coach there named uh, uh, Dick Sheffield. And then I went on to uh, play uh, Stephen F. Austin. And then uh, of course I have coached several places throughout Texas and Louisiana. And I have, uh, I coached for 46 years in high school football and proud of that. And I was a head coach at uh, Willow Ridge and Fort Bend and then in Cypher School District, Langham Creek, and then Aldane School District, Nimitz, and then uh, at Humble High School for uh, 15 years. And it was a labor of love. It was my hobby and uh, I really, uh, really enjoyed it. Yeah, that, that's 46 years is, is pretty impressive. Uh, and how, how, how many of those were your head coach? Uh, 26 years as a head coach. Okay, well, that, that's that's great. And, said, and yeah, you, you, you named some some pretty, uh, pretty, pretty good, good football schools there that you were that you were a part of. Uh, can, can you tell us? Uh, can you tell us share a story about a memorable game that you were privileged to be a part of and, and during all that time? Well, I guess, uh, you know, had a lot of, a lot of big games, but I guess the most memorable is uh, in 1981, we were, I was in the second year as head coach at Willow Ridge and we were our, our second varsity season. And we were playing uh, Beaumont Hebert in the state semifinals. And uh, Beaumont Hebert, was number one in the state all year, undefeated. And they had had quite a tradition. They, they uh, had a great coach named Alex Durley. Tell you a little bit more about him as we go. Uh, he's a wonderful, wonderful coach and man. But anyway, they were favored to beat us by 28 points. The previous week they had beaten Waco Moore 51 to seven. And like I say, we were a 28 point underdog going into that game. Of course, 
This game, I think, was spectacular. It was a close game. Uh, went back and leads went back and forth and down to the wire. But there were several great players that played in that game. Of course, we had uh, most we had some great players, but most famous, of course, was Thurman Thomas, who was in the NFL Hall of Fame, and then of they course. they had uh, Jerry Bowl, who uh, played ten years in the NFL, the nose tackle for Oakland yep. and uh, for uh, Detroit Lions, and of course, Coach Durley himself is a legend. And they had a quarterback named Gerald Landry, who was a great quarterback at the uh, uh, University of Houston. And there were many others. You could easily uh, field a, a state championship track team if you could put those two uh, skilled people, those two teams together. Uh, but anyway, in the, the game, uh, we had a tough week of preparation because there were some students in our school who had some ties with Beaumont Hebert. Their parents had gone there, and, and so a lot of them wore Beaumont Hebert letter jackets to school and told our players how bad they were going to get beat. And, of course, there was a lot of hype in the, the media, but I was really amazed and pleased with the preparation of our players during the week, and they believed that they were going to win. And, but in the game, we got the first lick in. We had a, uh, Hayward had a, a impenetrable defense. You know, Jerry Ball played defensive tackle and they were hard to run against. And they had a real explosive offense, of course, uh, which featured Landry and several good receivers. But we scored on a 40 yard run uh, early in the game went up six to nothing. And then uh, Jerry Ball, they played him some at fullback. I'm glad they didn't play him any more than they did, but they put him in at fullback and they went proceeded to go down the field in the second quarter. And he made some explosive runs and they uh, kicked the extra point and led seven to six at halftime. And then in the third quarter, they put him in again and he, moved them down the field and going into the end zone, he ran who's a sophomore and weighed 138 pounds. Uh, guy played at Baylor named John Simpson. John was laying out there and he was still and he wasn't moving. No, I was afraid he was dead. And I talked to John about that years later. He said, coach, I thought I was dead too. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, of course, John got up and played the rest of the game. And then, uh, of course, right after that, Jerry Ball scored. Our fullback, Anthony White, went 75 yards with it. And we uh, we made the score 12 to 14. We missed the extra point. But then in the fourth quarter, with about two minutes left, we sacked Gerald Landry on the 20-yard line. We recovered and we ran uh, three plays and didn't make an inch, but John Simpson was our kicker, the guy that got run over by Jerry Ball, and he kicked a 30-yard field goal to win the game. And oh. the arm that is he had, in the pl two playoff games combined, he'd missed five extra points in a row. 
But anyway, it put us up 15 to 14. And then they got the ball back and then they made a threat at the last. They got down in our territory. And Thurman Thomas was playing with a sophomore cornerback, cornerback, and he intercepted the ball in the end zone. We ran the clock out. We wow. won 14, which we lost the state championship game the following week. But another thing that was great about that game is uh, the next year, uh, Habert consolidated with two other Beaumont schools and they formed Beaumont Westbrook. Okay. This was a story, it was just, it paralleled the Remember the Titans movie. Do you remember that? Yes, yes sir. It was just like that. They were 0-4, their first four non-district games, and they won the remainder of their games. They went undefeated and won the Class 5A state championship. Wow. Which was a credit to Coach Durley bringing them together. But they had all the same players. They had Gerald Landry and uh, Jerry Ball and most of the uh, other players. Of course, we won the state championship the following year in 4A. So I guess that's the most memorable game. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great story. And, yeah, that, that's one that I'm sure all those players involved probably still talk about that game to this day. Uh, they do. And I'll see the Hebert players and uh, they'll, they'll find out who I am and they'll talk to me and say, I still can't believe we got beat. <laughs> people were calling the, uh, I had a friend who was a writer for the Beaumont Enterprise. They said people were calling the Beaumont Enterprise all night asking if that score was correct. <laughs> That, that's that's awesome to be on the on the good on the positive end of that. Um, that was really that was one of the highlights. I'll have to say. Yeah, for sure. Now, when when you when you're coaching, what what was what would you say was your was your favorite scheme or play, uh, and and what was its purpose? Well, I had a lot of them, but my favorite is the power sweep, and. The reason I like is because it attacks the perimeter of the defense and breaks down uh, the defensive uh, containment. Uh, And I'm a historian and I study military strategy and the great generals of history were always able to uh, be victorious on the perimeter and outflank the opponent. Uh, The most notorious of those was uh, Napoleon. And of course, it's said that Napoleon was worth, uh, Napoleon being on the front line is worth having 50 extra soldiers. You know, that he he was uh, that good. Yeah. You had Robert E. Lee, George Patton, they were, uh, their trump cards were being able to outflank the opponents. But most of the career, we ran the sweep from the wing tee and then the eye. In the last two years of my career, we ran the spread. Now, the wing T and I were more conducive toward running the power sweep. And the power sweep was a play we called when we were in, in doubt. And I don't know how many times uh, we get down to the, in the state championship in 1982, we got down to the one yard line. And my offensive coordinator, Dennis Damel, was doing a great job. He's just a great offensive coordinator instrumental in our success, but he looked around me, fourth and one on the one. He said, coach, what do you want to run? I said, let's run 48 sweep. And 
it was just in doubt, you call the power sweep. But it's a, a smash mouth play. You know, Nick Saban, when they went to the spread, he talked to people about how to incorporate smash mouth into the spread. And, but everybody needs a play where you say, here we come, stop us if you can. Mm-hmm. And the spread formation, we went to spread, it's helpful in establishing a flank just by alignment. And then you put some more pressure on them with a passing game that that. But you got to be more creative in finding ways to attack the perimeter out of the spread. So we used the jet sweep. You know, we came up with pretty good jet sweep. We ran some bubble screens and then jailbreak screens to the wide receiver, you know, with the guard and tackle yeah. pulling out there and uh, some wide counter trays to accomplish this. But you still got a way, have, have a way to run those tough, here we come, stop as you can plays and attack the perimeter and containment. And then, of course, defensively speaking, one of my, the biggest things I harped on was containment. I would freak out when we lost containment on our defense. Got to have it. Yeah. And other ways to attack containment is to sprint out and bootleg passes, and they can be effective. Of course, they create a pass threat too, which help help out in that. Yeah, that's like you said. It's a very very important piece of, of the of the puzzle. Whether you're talking about offense or defense, you know, you, you can keep that perimeter uh, in check and, and and win those battles, and and you're going to have some success no matter what side you're on. I guess that's a, a a pet peeve I have in watching pro football is I don't think they put enough premium on containment sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they rely on their playmakers to just go, go go do their thing and and not don't necessarily put them in the in the position to to where they can be successful doing doing that. Uh, right. Uh, so. What uh, you said? You said you you coached for forty six years, head coach for twenty six of them. Uh, so what what is one thing that you wish you had known before you became a head coach, uh, or campus coordinator? Well, I I feel like that to be successful as a head coach and coordinator, you have to confront problems when they first arrive arise and not sweep them under the carpet. I think too many head coaches let problems fester and don't, don't address them. And they, uh, uh, I think they end up uh, uh, causing great damage to their program. But I think when a problem arises, you see it coming. If you can't, if you do it, we see it coming. It's need to quickly, after careful thought, address that problem and anything that will affect the success and reputation of your program or anything that will seriously affect your coaching and player morale. You know, mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, too many coaches let things go. And then also uh, to know not to fight battles over matters that don't affect the success of your program. And I say coaches a lot of times go out of their way get involved in squabbles and problems on the campus that do not affect uh, success directly. 
And then I think too many coaches cannot control themselves in game situations. And people used to ask me what I do during a game, because I had offensive and defensive coordinators that I delegated the play calling to. And if they asked me uh, for a suggestion, I would give it to them. But most of the time I, I let them go and interfere with them. But my job was to keep myself and everybody else under control during the game and motivate the players. And uh, I've seen too many coaches that maybe they get their, they're getting on an official and they keep hollering at him for maybe four or five, six, seven plays. And I think head coach has to get control of himself and be able to turn the page to the next play. And another problem I see in head coaches is not interacting with the players. You know, maybe they're too involved in the offensive and defensive play calling and they aren't uh, motivating, they aren't encouraging, they aren't patting kids on the back and they aren't dealing with the uh, problems uh, with the coaches or uh, players getting uh, angry and out of control. So, I wish I had known that. I mean, I had to kind of learn it the hard way, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I remember I was, I went to scout, you know, a game earlier in my career and I remember going and noticing that the head coach of this particular team, he had his headset on, but he always stayed, you know, like if the ball was on the, you know, plus 30, he'd be on the, you know, minus 40, somewhere away from the action, away from everything and away from everybody. And I remember it, it struck me as kind of odd for, you know, for him to just feel like he should, he needed to remove himself from everything. And, you know, and, and I know there is a time to do that, but it seemed like he spent most of the game, you know, just kind of away from everybody. And, and, and I remember, you know, kind of questioning that and thinking to myself, well, what, what's, what's your, what's the point then? Why, why are you here? If you're not going to interact with coaches, players, if you're not going to, you know, be directly involved with what's happening in the game, then, then, then what, what's, what, what is it that you are doing? Let the coordinators run the games. Train them to do it. Let them go. Uh, but I, I, I told a head coach one time that I worked for, you need to take your headset off and find out what's going on around you on the sidelines. You know, people were out of control and he wasn't uh, able to do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm the same way. I go to games. I see coaches like that. It's uh, it can be it can be a problem. Yeah, yeah. The, the, ultimately, that's like I said the book starts with you. So you gotta you gotta know what's happening. So like you said, you you have to when you're talking about addressing problems as you see them, you you have to know that the problems are coming. And so if you if you're kind of detached from the situation, then you're not gonna be able to, to stay ahead of things and meet them head on when they when they do show up and, and we all know there's going to be problems on game day. There's going to be something that comes up that you didn't plan for or you didn't expect. And, and you're the one that's got to deal with it. Yeah. Who's going to put out the fire if you don't. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, now it's as far as, uh, you know, aside from being a head coach, you know, just talking about uh, a coach transitioning to a new role with higher expectations, whether becoming a, a coordinator for the first time, whether they're becoming a position coach, uh, what's the, what's the most valuable advice that you could give a coach uh, going through a, a transition where they're going to have higher expectations? Well, to start out with a young coach that has all of those uh, ambitions, aspirations, I'd say that they 
need to start out working in a good program. And you say, you know, they start out in middle school or freshman, but they need to be at a place where they uh, can go to the high school. I say they, they need to go to their high school uh, on a regular basis, help them during fall practice and uh, make as many practices as they can, offer to help out uh, and go to the meetings on the weekends. You know, I did that when I started out and I went to the weekend planning meetings and I'd go up, uh, the varsity would practice after we got through with the middle school practice and I'd run scout squad for the uh, defense and, you know, just be around uh, those varsity coaches. And I'd say, you know, that that's important in uh, uh, preparation. And also you need to get experience working both sides of the ball. A pet peeve I have is too many coaches have a background only on one side of the ball. Maybe as they were there as a player, and then that's all they've coached is one side of the ball. And and I think it hurts them when they become a coordinator because the coordinator needs to know both sides of the ball. And as a head coach, it really can can affect you. Uh, I'd say study a lot of film. Attended, attend a lot of clinics and spring trainings. Uh, a coach that you may know, he coached in spring branch named Oscar Cripps. Yes, One sir. Jeff at Stratford in 1978. He probably got on the fastest track of becoming a varsity coach and a head coach of anybody that I can know, that I know. Became a head coach at a very early age. Whatever clinic you would go to, you see Oscar Cripps sitting on the front row taking notes and asking questions. And there's a lot of good clinics. And I think going to clinics can add years of experience to a young coach. And of course, the Angelo Clinic in San Angelo is something I made, made it, uh, I mean, it was just something I went to every summer. And it was just saturated with uh, all kinds of football, you know, both sides of the ball and the kicking game. But I think if you're going to be a position coach, which, uh, in preparing for these positions, you need to go talk to people who are successful in that area of coaching. Which become a position coach, talk to successful coaches at the position you're going to be coaching. And be, get well grounded, watch film, get well grounded in the fundamentals of that position. And then as a coordinator, talk to successful coordinators, but now uh, you've got to be able to look at the overall picture of that side of the ball. You got to need to talk to them about how to lead and motivate a staff and players. You're almost like a head coach on your side of the ball, how to delegate and allow position coaches to contribute to planning. I've had some coordinators who could not take suggestions and ideas and uh, didn't give their uh, position coaches enough input on uh, you know the game planning. Uh, so that, that's important is how to make everybody feel uh, a, a part of it, get everybody to contribute, and then how to game. Then talking about how to game plan and make game adjustments, and you need to develop a general knowledge of 
all positions on your side of the ball, or you may have played in the line. And you know, that's, that's something I had to really study the secondary. I didn't ever play defensive back or linebacker. I just I had to study those positions, but you need to develop a thorough knowledge of that before you go into it. Uh, and also try to learn a thorough knowledge of the other side of the ball. You need to understand what the other side trying to do to you. Now, as a head coach, you visit other successful head coaches and you talk to them about organization. That, that is, is uh, so important. And you talk to them about discipline. And I'm a big believer without discipline, you have nothing. Uh, how to delegate. Uh, I've seen too many coaches, head coaches that try to uh, uh, do everything. If they don't uh, call plays, what they, they micromanage too much. And then motivation, you need to study motivation. And you, you need to learn, need to learn how to make checklists. And I think, and we have discussed this with, uh, you, you know, David Amon at North Shore and other coaches. They say the greatest reason for failure as a head coach is, is not being thorough enough and not covering all your bases. And Nick Saban, says that quite often. Uh, you need to ask different head coaches how they deal with specific problems that come up. And another thing, I think as a coordinator and head coach, you need to learn as much about the kicking game uh, as possible, practice it and uh, sell it. Because I think most of the losses that I had the close games, the big games. If we lost, I'd find something in the kicking game where we broke down. And I think the games that we won because of the kicking game. Yeah, absolutely. That That's something that, you know, it, it really is a third of the game, you know, and, and I think a lot of people don't, don't always treat it as such, you know, they, they might make, a little bit of time here and there to, to practice or, you know, perfect the schemes. But, you know, the kicking game is definitely something that, that will win and lose ball games, depending on how much attention you put on it. And most of the time I took, I, I was the kicking game coordinator as a head coach. And Bo Schembechler said he was. And Bo said, if the old man thinks it's important, then everybody else is going to, all in and think it's important, including assistant coaches and players. So I think you've got to sell the kicking game and be prepared uh, in it. Yeah, that's 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 very, very valuable for sure. Uh, and that's you know you got some 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 great advice, coach. I really appreciate all of that. Uh, and uh, you know th this this question, the next question, I think is you know kn knowing. A little bit about your history, maybe the hardest question that you get today, but uh, who would you say are the top three high school players you were able to watch in person throughout your career? That is very difficult because I've been fortunate to coach and to see a, 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 whole, a whole bunch of them. And I know I'm going to leave a few people out who were very good and some of them played for me. 
But I'd have to start with one of my own players, Thurman Thomas. <laughs> yep. Uh, all three of these guys, including him, they were all American, all NFL, and at least two of them, maybe all three of them, were in the NFL Hall of Fame. And of course, Thurman is, and he uh, uh, was instrumental in helping us win the 1982 state championship. And uh, he made Oklahoma State good. And of course, he led the Buffalo Bills to four Super Bowls. Yeah. But he, for us, he played running back on offense, cornerback on defense, and maybe the best high school punt returner I've ever seen. You know, he used to light up that scoreboard at the Astrodome with kick returns. I, I bet. <laughs> he, he had a two thousand, at least one 2,000-yard season on every level. And he had great speed and great athleticism, but he was a finesse runner, but he could run with power. And we, we utilized him a lot as a receiver, and he could make the over-shoulder center fielder type catch as good as anybody. Uh, he played 95% of the plays at cornerback. We'd rest him about five plays during the game, but teams very rarely ran or passed to his side. And he played on the left side of the defense. They ran mostly up the middle or to the right side. And we used to joke that it's great when you used to have to defend half the field. <laughs> yeah. But Makes it easier. So good at cornerback that there were some teams that recruited him as a cornerback, but he wanted to play running back. So he went to Oklahoma State because they strongly promised him play running back. But then uh, Earl Campbell, I guess the thing about him that really stands out to me was the great run he made in the 1973 state championship game in the Astrodome against Austin Reagan. He was, it was uh, about 55 or 60 yards, but he ran over, he got hit eight times and ran over people. And they asked Earl years later, said, Earl, what was the greatest run you ever made? Was it the run you made against the Miami Dolphins on Monday night football? Just saw that one, it was an 86 yard run. He said, no, it was the run in the state championship game in 1973. But anyway, it's a great pleasure for me to witness that. Oh, yeah. Always been a great admirer of him as a player and a person. Uh, and then uh, in 1972, I went to a game at Tully Stadium. And San Antonio Lee was playing Brazoswood. And Lee had won the state championship the year before. They had a great quarterback named Tommy Kramer and some all-world receivers and the great coach there, John Ferrara. Uh, but they were playing Brazoswood, which at that time was a new school. And Brazoswood led them 14 to nothing with about three minutes to go. And Tommy put on an air show now. And they scored three touchdowns in the last three minutes to win that game, 18 to 14. But Tommy had a great career. He went played, he was an All-American at Rice. And 
was a all pro at the Minnesota Vikings and set records. And anyway, I know I'm leaving a lot of people out, but to me, those three were really outstanding. Oh yeah, that, I mean that's that, that's that's quite an impressive list. And you know, I, I'm I, I'm I was you know I went to Kate High School. And I was class of '98, and so you know it, th- that's when you were when you were in Humble. And I, mean, I just remember that all I knew about Humble High School is that y'all just had some unbelievable talent. You know, with you know David Givens, David Boston. Uh, Leo Mills, you know, some of those guys that came through there, you know, said for, for my age, I mean, th- those guys were incredible. Uh, but, you know, he said when you, when, then when you get into, you know, guys like Thurman Thomas and Earl Campbell, I mean, that, that's, it's really, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to compare and how to, how to compete with, with that level of, of talent. But, you know, he said you, you, you had just some, some incredible, incredible kids that played for you uh, at, at every single one of your stops, it seems like. Well, I did. I'm not that great a coach. And that's and that's not to take any way thing away from David Boston and David Gibbons. They were great players and really did a lot for our program. Okay, now the, the other thing I was going to ask you about, Coach, is uh, I know you were one of the past presidents of the THSCA. Uh, you know, t- tell me tell me a little bit about what your wh- number one what 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 that means as far as you know being a head coach and being uh, a leader in that organization, and as well as you know the value of, you know, making sure that, that coaches are continuing to to join those organizations and to be active with all of our professional coaching organizations. Well, it was really an education for me to be part of that. Of course, we had a, a great leader at that time in Eddie Joseph. Mm. Uh, Eddie was really a, a a smart guy with a lot of common sense and. He had a great personality uh, in dealing with uh, legislators and people who could uh, help or hurt our profession. And so I really, it really uh, helped me see how much impact the, the High School Coach Association has on uh, uh, what happens in Texas athletics and in keeping uh, uh, things that laws from passing that would uh, would hurt our profession. And I learned a lot from Eddie. And one thing I learned is we had uh, such smart coaches from all over the state. First of all, it, it just thrilled me to be able to meet and make friends with people from all over the state. And we found out how much we as college coaches had in common. But a uh, thing I learned that you're not going to put anything past old coach in those meetings. And those coaches were smart and they, <laughs> they really uh, came up with good ideas and good plans of action to uh, confront any, you know, any problems that we have. And of course, the coaches association really does a good job promoting all athletics. And but anyway, I was just fortunate to be a part of that and honored to uh, elected by my peers. Yeah, that's, that's when you look when you know when I look back at, at the list of of people who have had that that distinction and that that title, I mean, it, it's it's impressive and, and it you know it definitely a, a group that 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 is some some great company, you know, and said it, it's. 
uh, it's great that you got to be a part of that. And it just, it puts you up there with, with quite a list of, uh, of some of the greatest names in our profession. Well, I might would have some assistant coaches that I didn't encourage them all to go to the coaching school and go to the meetings and get involved in the association. I, you know, they might complain a little bit about it. I said, well, you won't be teaching six solid classes and not be making as, even as much money as you do now and uh, coaching three sports. You want all of that. You better get involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's one thing people don't realize is is that it it took it took effort to get to where we are right now, and and it it definitely takes some effort to to maintain it as well. You know, it's not something that that you know pe- people take for granted sometimes how much you know how much has been done by by those who came before us to to be able to get the profession where it is right now, and and those organizations are a big part of that for sure. Yeah, we had some great pioneers before us that set set that pattern for us. Mm. You know, like Gordon Wood, I think is a great example. Did a whole lot for Texas high school coaches. Absolutely. Um, now, the um, my last question for you, uh, and this is you know this is kind of what the the whole podcast was based on. But uh, how would you explain Houston area football and its legacy to somebody that has never been around it? You know, is it somebody who spent a long, long time coaching? here in Houston? Well, I guess Ed always kind of kept up with uh, what was happening in Houston football. And I jumped, jumped at the opportunity to take a job at Dulles High School in Fort Bend in 1976 because uh, of the reputation of, tech, of Houston High School football. I wanted to get here as fast as I could. And looking back at the history and one reason maybe it's quite as big as it was i think first of all i think we have to look at the oil industry and look at what it, it has done for houston houston the city of houston made it you know the lord's uh prosperous city that it is but i think it uh made it really uh fueled and financed football because it's able to pour money into uh, schools and athletic programs. And they were able to build first-class facilities and hire good athletic directors and coaches and uh, have good athletic budgets. And I think in the 1950s, the enthusiasm for it came out of the refinery towns like uh, Baytown, Galena Park, and uh, Deer Park, and LaPorte. And all those guys, a lot of the people in those communities worked at their families together. And they would uh, uh, develop rivalries between each other. And so had a great rivalry between Galena Park and Baytown, Baytown Lee, and Deer Park and LaPorte. And that is still uh, quite a rivalry. Oh, yeah. Two schools. So at Baytown Lee, when they would kick off all the refinery whistles would go off at once at their kickoff. And if that's not showing a lot of support and enthusiasm, I don't know what is. Yeah. Uh, Deer Park in the 50s won three state championships. Baytown Lee and Galena Park 
competed in the 50s and 60s at the state level. And then you come down to uh, the 80s, you had Gates and, and Willowridge, who uh, were very competitive teams on the, on the state level and created a, a lot of uh, uh, enthusiasm. And then, of course, North Shore and Katy teams from the late 90s to present have won multiple state championships. I've lost count on that. Yeah. You can probably tell me how many Katie's have won. <laughs> They're up to nine, I believe. And uh, I've got great, of course, David Amon at North Shore was a great friend of mine. He started out as an assistant coach for me. And then, of course, John Kay, I know quite well. And then I'm a great admirer of Mike Johnson and Eddie Joseph at Katie for, you know, putting that program together. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the Houston area, we've had outstanding athletic directors who have been able to hire outstanding coaches. And they were able to build large facilities. And of course, one thing I think it really uh, promoted Houston football was the Astrodome, having all those playoffs, the Astrodome, and then now at NRG. But you'd always see Houston coaches setting the end zones at those playoff games. And of course, they had great camaraderie. And the Greater Houston Coaches Association, I think the work of that is an illustration of the camaraderie. Uh, and expertise of the Houston coaches. There was a coach who left the Houston area and took a job in Dallas. And he said that there, uh, the camaraderie between coaches in Houston is just so much greater than in Dallas. And so I think that speaks a lot uh, for it. And then you've got the promotion of the Houston Touchdown Club. You know, that Touchdown club banquet they have every year is just really, really great. Prosky football. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I think to me really illustrates how good football we have in Houston. In 2004, uh, the Super Bowl came to, to Reliant. Yeah. And with the Super Bowl, they always uh, invite teams from eight countries to come in. And then they have a team of all-stars from the city where the Super Bowl is that plays them. We had, we had Canada and Russia, Japan, Mexico, and about eight countries involved. And of course, uh, I was able to help out, help coach the all-star team, the Greater Houston players. The Katie staff really hated it all. Mike Johnson, Jerry Joseph, Mike still coaching then. And then Ray Seals, Madison and Oscar Cripps, we all coached that game together. But we took some Houston All-Stars and we beat Canada in the championship game. They had a team that had the best players out of Canada. And they were, they were big and they were uh, talented. But a team from Houston uh, won that championship. So I think that testifies how good football is here in our area. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's, that's phenomenal. Uh, well, Coach, uh, I want to thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your thoughts with our audience. It's been, been a, an outstanding conversation. I really appreciate your time and, 
And I want you to know that, that I, I, we, we, those of us that listen to this podcast just really appreciate learning from coaches who have been through these situations and, and who paved the way for, for our generation. And, and, and this allows us to continue to lead young men and women through the power of positive coaching. Uh, it, it, as always, if any of our listeners have a recommendation for a guest to have on the Houston Coaches Podcast, you can email your suggestions to HoustonCoachesPod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at Coaches Houston and send us your suggestions there. Uh, Coach Quillen, again, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, listening to you and, and, and gaining some wisdom from you. I uh, wish you all the best and I look forward to speaking to you soon, sir. Well, thank you. And I hope I said something which might help somebody. But I appreciate you and all the young coaches and appreciate the job y'all are doing and carrying uh, the tradition on. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Appreciate it. Uh, Join us again next time on the Houston Coaches Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Houston Coaches Podcast, presented by the Greater Houston Football Coaches Association. Our theme song is In the Battle of Good and Evil by Ryan Davis, a former high school football coach. Please subscribe to our show and leave us a review so we can continue to spread our message to a larger audience. Tune in next week for another enlightening conversation about Houston area football and its impact on all those privileged to be a part of it.